Acts chapter 8. Would you find it this morning? Acts chapter number 8. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of Scripture that I want you to keep your Bibles open to this chapter. I'll reference it several times throughout the message. And um, I, I preached this message, or one very, very similar to it, back in 2015. And I say that because somebody's going to come up to me after the service and say, well, you preached that and you've got it written down in your Bible somewhere. But the story really demonstrates the message that I want to give this morning that's on my heart more than any other story in the Bible, I believe. And so I've come back to it. It's been six years and I've changed some of it, but I, I know this is what the Lord would have me to preach for this morning. Acts chapter number 8, and you'll recognize the story when we begin reading it. But beginning in verse number 9, well, there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. <clears throat> and to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. At the close of Acts chapter 6, Stephen has been arrested and has been brought before the council in Jerusalem. That's a Jewish council. He had been preaching to a synagogue in Jerusalem and nobody had been able to dispute him. And so just like with Jesus, they brought in two false witnesses who testified that he had committed blasphemy. That's going to be the charge. So in chapter 7, Stephen is allowed to give a defense and instead he just, he just preached a sermon. 
And if you read chapter 7, it's probably the finest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. He works his way through the Old Testament. But when he got to Jesus, that's when the council got so agitated and so angry that they rose up in violence against him. That's when mob rule took over. They took him out and they stoned him and Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. And it seems that the stoning of Stephen was a pivotal point because it opened up the door to a wave of persecution that came against the church. There was a young man named Saul standing there. The Bible says that he was consenting to the death of Stephen. And of course, Saul became the chief antagonist or inquisitor of the early church. So in chapter 8, what you find is you find the church scattering, the Christians scattering because of the persecution. They're leaving Jerusalem. And, and when they left, when they scattered, they, they took the gospel with them, which, which had been the plan all along. The Great Commission from Acts 1 and verse 8 was to preach the gospel unto the uttermost part of the earth. But that had not happened. What you read about is a great church is being built in Jerusalem, but there is no evangelistic, there's no mission expansion. And so to drive the Christians out of Jerusalem, God allowed persecution to rise up against them, and wherever they went, they, they took the gospel. Well, one of those Christians was a man named Philip. Philip was an evangelist, and he went down to Samaria, preached, and saw a great number of people get saved. And in Acts chapter 8, there are two men who responded to Philip's preaching. There is Simon the sorcerer, and then if we had to continue reading in the chapter, there is the Ethiopian eunuch. So there are two conversion stories in that chapter, and I believe that they are set there as a contrast to each other. Because while it looks like that two men got saved, I believe that only one of them was truly converted. No doubt in my mind, the Ethiopian eunuch trusted Christ. But there is some debate as to whether Simon was a true believer or not. And you may be wondering why, because here is a man, the Bible said, that heard Philip preached, that he believed what Philip preached, that he made a profession of faith, he was baptized, and he continued for a while. And I think if you read the text carefully, there is something missing in his conversion. And if I'm judging the text correctly. What Acts chapter 8 illustrates is that there's always two kinds of results to preaching. There is true faith and there is false faith. There is wheat, there are tares. That there is branches that abide, there are branches that are cut off. I believe that that is true in every church. We're a Baptist church. One of the Baptist distinctives is we believe in a regenerated membership. That simply means that only those who profess faith in Christ can become members of the church. But that does not mean that every member is regenerated. It only means that they have claimed to be. You would understand that church membership in this church or any church does not make you a Christian. And in many churches, there are people that sit there who know God and they love God. And there are others who sit there who have never exercised saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to make it clear this morning that I am no man's judge. I don't know who is saved. I don't know who is not saved. 
There is a church in our area that specializes in getting people saved over and over and over and creating a lot of doubt. And I, I think that that is a dangerous thing. I believe it's dangerous to create doubt. I believe it is dangerous to give false hope. I, I don't traffic in either one of them. But, but in my heart of hearts, I do not believe that every member of every church is saved. I believe there's a lot of people sitting in church, even this morning, probably even in this church, that are religious but lost. That is the point of Acts chapter 8. That where there is preaching, there will be true faith and there will be false faith. And the danger of false faith is that it looks so much like true faith. There, there is a fine line between, between profession and possession. I'll tell you why I say that, because I can read this story from a distance and I see problems with Simon's profession of faith. I'll show them to you in just a minute. But did you know that Philip, the evangelist that was preaching that day, actually believed that Simon got saved? Philip preached, Simon came forward at the invitation, and Philip was convinced that it was the real deal. Why do you say that? Verse number 13. Then Simon himself believed also, watch this, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Philip watched this man make a profession of faith. And Philip was persuaded enough for Philip to baptize him. And then the Simon the sorcerer continued with him for a while. Now I don't mean to belabor the point, but from all outward appearances, Simon is a genuine convert. But you can say the right things. You can go through all the right motions. You, you can pray an emotional prayer. But salvation has never been based on externals. You, you can sing in the choir. You can give to charity. You can read your Bible. You can be a church-going person. And you can end up in hell. And if you'll read this text carefully, I believe that you'll find a problem with Simon's profession that despite what he believed, that despite what, what, what he did, I, I believe that, that when his heart is exposed, it will expose him as a false believer. Let me tell you why I say that. First of all, he has a false view of self. Come back to verse number nine. Verse number nine. Well, there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, watch this, giving out that himself was some great one. That is what Simon thought about himself. And that is what he has led the people of Samaria to believe about him as well. That he was great. Everybody who knew him thought that this is a good man. This is a great person. He used his magic tricks. He used his sorcery to bewitch the people of Samaria. And they applauded him as one of the pillars of the community. But here's what's missing from the story is that he never did break from that pride. That he never came to God as anything but great. From all indications, when he came to God, it wasn't because he was a worthless sinner. He's a proud man. He's looking for more glory for himself with this new thing that Philip was preaching. And I'm not going to get off on this this morning, but I, but I do just want to say a word about this. There is a degree of magic that I believe is satanic. 
Now, now stay with me and help me on the monitor if you would, brother. I'm having trouble with my voice. I'm not talking about parlor tricks and court card tricks and illusions and sleight of hand. But a Christian would be circumspect to, to, be, to be careful about being becoming too enamored with magic. I believe that the devil can give men demonic powers in, powers that are demonic in nature. And, and, and when a person delves into the supernatural, Paul said in Colossians that he's intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And, and I think that you got to be very careful. I believe that, that that was Simon the sorcerer. He has sold his soul to the devil and he's practicing magic that, that is demonic in power. He's able to call down He's able to call down demonic supernatural powers to do wonders and tricks. When it says Simon the sorcerer, he, he's not, it's not just part of tricks. It's not just illusions. And the people of Samaria, they, they knew him well, and he had duped them into thinking that he was something great. And Simon went around, and he was actually worshipped as divine himself. Look, look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 again, it says, To whom they all gave he from the least to the greatest, say, This man is the great power of God. Simon had given himself over to demonic power, and the payout is that he's worshipped as a God himself. And I can't prove this. I believe that he was planted in the church by Satan, that Satan moved him into the church under the cover of a false profession to infiltrate and corrupt the church. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Stay with me. Simon didn't know who he was. He had a faulty view of self. He thought that he was great, and he allowed others to think that he was great. Can I tell you, wake up, wake up. Can I tell you that great men never get saved? The proper view is that I'm nothing. The proper view is that I'm vile. The proper view is that I am wretched. The proper view is that I'm lost without God and I'm helpless outside of His free grace. That's how you come to God. The first thing that keeps men out of heaven, out of heaven is a wrong view of themselves. We've heard it for so long that we're sick of it, that man is basically good, that you just need to fan the spark of your own goodness and, and some believe that they are just so good that God would never judge me and God would never send me to hell, that hell is for the really, really bad people, but hell is not for people like me. You ask any man on the street if he's saved and instead of telling you about his salvation, he'll tell you about himself. Well, when I, I go to church. You know, I don't beat my wife. I, I provide for my family. I, I give to charity. I, I live a clean life as if God is sitting in heaven applauding them for their good works. But the truth is, is that God is sickened by it. The sin that sends more men to hell than anything else is the sin of pride. Pride may hide in your heart or it may strut down the street in broad daylight, but pride is there anyway. Job 35 and 13, surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Psalm 10 and verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. James 4 and verse 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. I'm reminded of that Pharisee in the book of Luke that came to God. And he didn't really pray, all he did is recount all of his goodness to God. So impressed with himself. 
thoughtless. Surely God would be impressed with him too. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, uh, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I, I give tithe of all that I possess. What do you think that prayer thought to God? And on the other side of the altar, here, here is a publican. He is under no such delusion about himself. He knew who he was, and the only thing he could do is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here you have a good man that went away condemned, and you have a bad man that went away justified. Jesus said, I tell you, I tell you that this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I, I don't care. I don't care how many times Simon prayed or how sincere that he was in wanting to have Christ. I don't care if he truly believed what Philip was preaching. As long as he is convinced of his own goodness, he'll never be saved. I wish every person in this room was convinced of one thing, and it is this. How people don't get saved. Good people don't get saved. The only people who ever come to God who are people who are broken over their vile sin and convinced that hell is their just reward. And when we have church pews that are filled with people who have prayed a prayer when they were three or four, don't remember it, but Mama said that I did. And they've never met the Holy Ghost conviction over sin. And since they never felt it back then, they don't ever feel it now. They believe they got in the door without ever having to deal with their sin, so now they don't deal with it at all. He has a false view of self. So second problem with his profession, and it is that he has a false view of of salvation. Look if you would at verse number 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip is preaching and people are getting saved. Now, now, now watch this. Because this is the apostolic age, Philip was giving power to perform miracles. Miracles was an apostolic sign. It was a sign for that age only. And, 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 and because it, it was, he, he, he is preaching and he's performing these miracles, no man today has that power. Besides, it wasn't his miracles that turned people to Christ. It was his preaching. That's what the Bible said. But when they believe Philip preaching, preaching, spirit-filled preaching is more powerful than miracles any day of the week. But could it be that some of those people who have been following Simon, they're now following Jesus? The preaching of Philip was more powerful than the sorcery of Simon, and Simon could see his following starting to dwindle, and Philip's preaching is a threat to his little game, and so, so, so Simon has to plan his next move. And again, the reason why that Simon came to Philip was not because he wanted forgiveness of his sins or because he was convicted about his own sin. That's not the reason why he came. The reason why he came is because he saw what Philip could do and he wanted some of that. He, he believed that, that, that what Philip said about Christ, he believed that with a, with a mental sin. But I'm going to say, believing it and accepting it are two different things. He has no interest in forgiveness of sins. Here's what he wants. He wants the power that Philip had. If he could somehow 
add what Philip has to his own bag of tricks, boy, he would be somebody. Now catch this. He saw salvation as a commodity. Become one of these Christians and this is what I will get in return. By the way, Jesus ran into those folks during his own ministry. Whenever he performed miracles, I mean great crowds came to him. But Jesus knew, you're not, you're not a true follower. You're following me for what you can get out of me. That's why you're here. So Simon attaches himself to Philip because Philip has put on a good show and it's evident he's just trying to figure out how can I get some of Philip's power? There, there, there is nothing about him giving up his own sorcery. No, I, I want to add this other power to my own body. If I can add what Philip has to what I have, then I can really be worshipped. I can really be adored. He wants salvation. Catch this. He wants salvation for how it would benefit him. Are you, are you with me? That's why I believe that in modern day churches and modern day pulpits, I think you ought to be careful about always presenting the benefits of salvation without ever making clear the demands of salvation. If I stand here Sunday, every Sunday morning and in a sweet, smooth, syrupy voice, I don't know how to do that, but if I could figure out how to do that, and if all I did was tell you that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and he wants joy and peace and heaven and eternal life and that's what Jesus wants to give you. By the way, that's true. But that's not all the truth. And if all you do is tell people, this is what God wants to do for you and he wants to make a wonderful life for you, take away all of your problems, well, who wouldn't want that? I mean, who wouldn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want joy and peace and, and all of those things? But I'm going to tell you something. You don't get saved because of what you get out of it. You get saved because you're under the conviction of the Holy Ghost that you have violated the laws of God. You're under condemnation and you're in danger of hellfire. Nearly every gospel tract that you pick up begins with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Can I tell you that's actually true? It is. God does love you. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. That is not the foundational truth of the gospel. The gospel does not begin with God loves you. The gospel begins with the law. And the law says that you are under divine wrath. The first message isn't that God loves you. The first message is that God hates your sin. And he hates your sin enough to send his son, as he's saying, to a cross on Calvary to die a horrible death to pay everything for your sin. That's the message. And I think we have to be careful not to give people false hope. A false hope that if you just trust Jesus, your life is going to be wonderful. If you, if you just trust Jesus, Jesus take all the bad out. He'll make everything good. And, I, and I, tell you, I tell you that when that is preached, that all that we're doing is we're making salvation a commodity that just makes life wonderful. But don't think that salvation is something that you just pick up to get rid of your troubles. Because I tell you, saved people got troubles too. In fact, if you'll get saved, you'll probably get a whole new set of troubles you didn't have before. Salvation is not some bag of tricks that you add to your life to get rid of your problems. You understand, Simon the sorcerer is not looking to quit his sorcery. 
He wants to add to it. He wants what Philip has so I can keep this little scam going on. Salvation is not a commodity to bring you prosperity and get Jesus on your side just in case something bad happens at your life. If that's what you think, you are looking at salvation from a selfish point of view and that view will condemn a man. He has a false view of self. He has a false view of salvation. But I want you to notice he has a false view of the Spirit. Look at verse number 14. And when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Peter and John, the apostles in Jerusalem, they hear about the revival in Samaria. So they decide to go down and investigate it. Peter and John are going to go down and they're going to make sure that this is of God. And you have to remember that at this time, the church had been isolated in Jerusalem and was mostly Jewish up to this point. So this is a new thing. It sounds like, it sounds like the real deal, but, but we, need, we need some apostles to go down and check on it. The last thing we need is a false movement going about in the name of Christ. And so here comes... Peter and John. So Peter and John, they come down to, to the revival and they see what's happening and they're convinced that what's happening here is the same thing that happened at Pentecost in Jerusalem. So here's what they do. They pray for the Holy Ghost to fall on these new believers. And the Bible says that they were received by the Holy Ghost. Now stay with me. They've been saved and they've been baptized, but they have not received the Holy Ghost. Now, it might give you, give you heartburn, but the text is specific that they did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John were there and prayed for them and laid hands on them. So let me just take a minute and explain it for you. Right? There are some churches who preach that the Holy Spirit comes after Salvation, the doctrine of subsequence. It comes subsequent to salvation. You get saved. And then sometime later, months, maybe years, sometime later, you get the Holy Ghost. And you'll know you have the Holy Ghost when you speak in tongues. And so they preach that you can be saved and not have the Holy Ghost. Now, brother, buddy, I just have one little problem with that. And the problem I have is Romans 8 and verse number 9 that says, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. So, so that, that just kind of throws a little monkey wrench in that. Here's what we believe. We believe that you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. I mean, when you got saved, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit at that very moment moved inside of you. We call it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, later on, you get feeling of the Holy Spirit, but, but you are baptized, a spirit baptism, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit takes place the moment you got saved. It's not what happened in Acts chapter 8. But here's what you have to remember. Acts is a transitional book. You don't build doctrine from a transitional period. There, there, is a, there is a dispensational 
distinction that is seen in Acts chapter 8. And if you don't see that, you're going to come out with all kinds of messed up theology that's not going to fit in the church age. So why didn't they get the Holy Spirit when they got saved? Why did, that, why did they have to wait until Peter got there? Well, I'll tell you why in this case. For 500 years, there has been a rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans. Those two groups hated each other. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And those two religions are rivals. Do you remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well? Do you know where that was? It was Samaria. She was a Samaritan is what she was. Samaritan was a half Jew, half Gentile. They were, they were kind of cross. And, and, and here's a woman at the well. And she, you know what? She was amazed that Jesus would speak to her and that Jesus would give her water. Why? Because Jesus was a Jew. She's Samaritan. And Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would walk around. That's why the Bible said he must needs go through Samaria. Typically, they would walk around it so they wouldn't sully their feet with soil of Samaria. That's how much they hated each other. Now, now watch this. If the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Samaritans immediately, there would have been no connection between them and the Jerusalem church, and that schism would have been just as great. They would have thought, you know what? You got your deal. We got our deal. You got your Holy Spirit. We got our Holy Spirit. But, 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 but Jesus came to make of many one people. The body of Christ is include Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, all together. And so Peter gets there. I'm going to tell you right now, there was nobody in the book of Acts that was more Jewish than Peter was. I mean, Peter has the hardest time accepting that Gentiles could get saved. He's going to have to see it to believe it. So the Holy Ghost sent Peter down there, and the Holy Ghost waited, waited to fall on those people till that Jew, Peter, could be there to see it. And when Peter saw that what's taking place in Samaria is the same thing that's place, taking place in Jerusalem, he accepted it. And later, Peter would go back to Jerusalem and report on what he saw, and he said the Holy Ghost fall on them as he was on us at the beginning. Now, that's what's happening. He said, for as much then as God gave them the gift like as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Now, that's what happened. Now Simon's standing there and he sees all this happen. And here's what he sees. He sees Peter come down. And he sees Peter lay his hands on those people. And he saw the evidence of the Holy Ghost come upon them. In his wicked heart he thought, Ooh, what Philip did was pretty good. But ooh, what Peter did is even better. Boy, what I really need is Peter's power. Look at verse number 18. Look at it. And Simon saw that through laying on the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. He thought that the Holy Ghost was a magic potion that you could buy with money. He doesn't want the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. I just want the power to do miracles. He had a high view of himself. He had a low view of God. He thought that God was just some bag of tricks. He just thought that you could pony money for up and you could add him to your repertoire. Can I tell you something about God? That nothing that he has is for sale. You can't buy one thing. You know why? You don't have anything he wants or needs. You can't buy anything for God. It's not for sale because it's all free. 
It's all over the Bible that everything that God offers is absolute. What are you going to offer God? And you better be glad this morning that He doesn't charge you because if He did charge you, you wouldn't be able to afford it. I've had men come to me and talk about spiritual problems. In the same context, tell me I'm going to give a donation to the church as if there is a connection. I want to put a check in the box and God's going to be so impressed and I'm going to be able to say, God, I gave your money some church so I expect you to do something for me now. By the way, Peter heard that. Peter got mad. And every once in a while, every once in a while, it's a good thing to get mad over the right things. Yeah, look at verse 20. Verse 20. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Here's what he said. Simon, you look good on the outside. You are rotten to the core on the inside. You cannot buy the gift of God with money. He has a false view of the Spirit. There's one other problem that I give you, and that's a false view of sin. Look at verse number 20. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Watch this. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God that perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter saw right through it. And you know what Peter says? Peter says, I don't even know if God will forgive you or not. That's what he says. Yeah. How would you like a preacher to tell you that? Huh? I'm just reading it. If perhaps the thought of thy heart may, for, may be forgiven. I don't know if it will be. But pray and find out. Huh? That's what he says. All I can tell you is pray and see if God will forgive you. That's what he, that's what he says. Peter condemns the heart of Simon and tells him your only hope is to repent. That's the only thing you've got left. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness. He knows what he's been doing. He knows the scam that he's been playing. He knows he's trying religion out, just trying to get something to help him. Peter speaks of his gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And you wouldn't like Peter. Peter don't have any kind words for him. Yeah. I, I, know, I know this doesn't go in 2021. I understand this. But it basically tells Simon you're a dirty, rotten sinner and your only hope is to repent. That's all you've got left. Verse 24. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me. Why? That none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. I read between the lines, this is just fluorology. But I think in verse 24 that Simon even shed a tear when he said that. I think he probably bowed his head, probably a real sad expression on his face, probably made his voice crack. Let me tell you what he didn't do in verse 24. Did you catch it? He didn't repent. There's no confession of sin. 
There's no judgment of itself. There's no acknowledging his wicked way. There's no godly sorrow. He doesn't ask for forgiveness one time in this chapter. He's scared, but he's not saved. The Bible says that godly sorrow works, godly sorrow worketh repentance and salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. He'd never faced his sin. He's able to go through this episode and avoid the real issue. He doesn't want to talk about sin. He doesn't want to talk about repentance. He wants more power in his life. He wants more miracles. He wants a commodity, but he does not want forgiveness. I believe with all of my heart, if I'm judging it right, brother buddy, I believe that Simon the sorcerer is hell. I believe it made a profession of faith. I believe that he pre believed the preaching of Philip. I believe that he was baptized. I believe he made some outward changes, but he was lost. Later on in this chapter, Philip will preach to the Ethiopian eunuch, and I believe that that man truly got saved. But I believe that Simon is here to illustrate what a false profession looks like. In many churches, there are good church-going folks who have no more salvation than Simon had. And after you've played religion all of your life, the hardest thing in the world will be to confess that you were never saved. And I want to be so careful not to create doubt in your heart. All of us ought to examine our heart. There's some of you here this morning, Pentecost, come. There's some of you here this morning, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. In your heart, you have full assurance. Your heart does not condemn you. There was a time in my life I knew I was saved, but I doubted it heavily. I had no assurance of my salvation. I can take you to the very spot in the very day where God gave me that peace. I'm going to tell you that assurance is as real as salvation itself. There's some of you here this morning that a message like this does not shake your faith. That what you have is real. There are some of you here this morning that you're saved and you're plagued with doubts. Every part of your salvation experience checks out with the Bible. And in the sincerity of your heart, you love the Lord. But the devil has crippled you with doubt and anxiety and fear. And you know that you're saved, but then you don't know that you are. It's the most crippling thing in the world to doubt a salvation is real. For some of you in this room, it could be that you're lost, but you've convinced yourself that you're okay. You know in your heart you don't have an ounce of spirituality. But how could you ever allow that to be exposed? How many times have we led a little child in a profession of faith without a full understanding? And that child grew up believing that they were saved just because mama said so. And now they've become an adult. And they believe because they've prayed the sinner's prayer but that's what will get them into heaven. They truly believe that salvation is in a prayer. A prayer that they barely remember. But because I'm good, because I'm moral, because I'm in church, I must be saved. And there are some sitting in our church, no doubt, that has no spirituality, no walk with God, no desire for holiness. But you prayed the sinner's prayer. That's all that you have. There's some in this church, perhaps, that you're lost and you're under conviction. Maybe you've been under conviction for a long time. And when you are confronted with that condition, you know 
You've never been saved. You'd like to be. You wish that you were. Oh, so much pride to push through to get to Jesus. And you know that if you used to die today, that hell would be your destiny. You're Simon. You have a profession, but it's a false one. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and.